Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome back to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast with me, Greg Gregory, as your host. Today, we're fortunate enough to have uh, on the Teamwork Advantage an All-American outside linebacker for Penn State University, where he earned his Bachelor's of Science in Health Policy Administration. He went on to play 10 seasons in the National Football League with Cincinnati, Chicago, and Detroit, as well as the Washington Redskins, where he started in Super Bowl XXVI. After retiring from pro football, he was the department head of the Emergency Registration Services at Virginia Hospital Center in Arlington, Virginia. Today, he currently serves as the executive director of the Professional Athletes Foundation, the charitable arm of the National Football League Players Association, where he works to ensure retiring players make a successful post-football transition. In addition to that, he still serves on the governing board for the Virginia Hospital Center. Andre Collins, welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. We're glad to have you. Thanks, Greg. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about, um, you know, leadership and how to motivate, how to motivate folks. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge, especially in the times that we're dealing with today. So let's, let's kind of go back a little bit. Um, in playing football, you had to make the transition. And obviously, that, that's a very difficult transition going from a professional athlete in the limelight on the field to working in a leadership. What was, what was the tough part for you when you made that transition into the private sector, if you will? I think the toughest part when you're coming from sports is you, you, don't, really know your, you don't really know your worth in the private sector. You know, you're so focused on game plans and the physical aspect uh, of pro football. Now, certainly there's a lot that goes into preparing for a game but it never really, it doesn't always translate to what happens um, in, the, in the, for lack of a better term, you know, the, you know, the general public's uh, workforce, you know, the, right. you know the, private, the private sector. So, you know, that transition was difficult. You don't know your worth, you don't know your value. So you're really starting from scratch. And for someone like myself, where I played a long time, you almost feel like you're discounted those 10 years that you played pro sports while your colleagues had already gotten started, you know, fresh after college. So as a 32 year old man starting my professional career, I really felt like I was literally 10 years behind. So that was probably the toughest, toughest part. And then certainly missing my teammates, missing the locker room, you know, showing up in your pajamas to start the work day. You don't, you don't, you don't get to do that um, <laughs> in the real world. So well, I don't know. Lately, things. we've been able to do that working from home. Well, that, that's true. But all those things were, were quite the adjustment uh, for mm -hmm. me, certainly probably for most of my teammates over those years. And it, it's really powerful because the average um, career time for a, an NFL football player is not that long. As you mentioned, you played 10 years, and that's considered a long time, especially in a defensive position. So do you think players that have played a shorter time have an easier transition or those who played longer have an easier transition? You know, that's something I've really thought about over the years and something in the last few years that we've really started to study, really trying to understand how much the game has impacted a former player's uh, life. 
and how they're able to move through life successfully. And I would honestly say that, you know, the shorter your career, the less football has impacted your life. So I think players that have played a long time, Mm -hmm. and I'm not talking about the superstar players like the Troy Aikmans or those types that can step out of, you know, their uniform and into the broadcast booth. But for a regular guy that's played a long time, it really does, you know, it really does set him back a little bit as he tries uh, to move through as opposed to a guy that maybe played one or two seasons. Exactly. And it's probably comparable in some ways, not completely, to uh, military personnel when they first come out of the military, trying to find their worth and fitting into a position. I think anytime there's a major transition, that's a challenge. Yeah, I've found over the years, you know, there are a lot of similarities uh, between former NFL players or former professional athletes and guys that have transitioned from the military. And we, from time to time, we have programs together where we do try and lean on each other's experiences and, you know, and talk about how that transition, that emotional transition has impacted us and how to move on from that, move forward from that. Yeah, that's, that's got to be powerful for both sides of that equation. Now, as you got out of football, you were working at the Virginia Hospital Center and in leadership capacities. How does being a leader in the private sector uh, differ from being a team member in a pro football setting? I mean, it, it, it's very different. And for me, for that being my very first experience, and I'm forever grateful uh, to, to Jim Cole for giving me that opportunity. I just happened to be a young guy in the right place, you know, at the right time. And sometimes that's how leadership happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was working some third shift manager's job at first um, in the emergency registration department. Um, you know, my boss decided to leave uh, for a number of reasons, and they were looking around for someone. And I was a guy wearing suits every day. I was getting there early, and I was leaving late. And they looked around, and they said, hey, why not him? So I was kind of thrown into the fire, you know, to manage, you know, 27 or 28 employees. And, you know, I, I felt like it. I was a little bit in, you know, over my head, really, because, I had never really managed people before, mm-hmm. but you know, you can you can assume that it's very different than football. You know, but there's always preparation in football, and there's always preparation on the job. There are always people that you need to inspire and and motivate and kind of nudge a little bit. So I really tried to draw on some of those teaming experiences and that inspirational leadership style that so many of my coaches had had over the years. And before we got on the call, we talked briefly about Coach Gibbs, you know, but some of those inspirational styles, I think early on in my career, teaming and that trying to be an inspirational leader really carried carried me through until I learned more about leadership and understanding my own personal styles. And that, that's a great transition is understanding your style. Because as we all know, there's lots of styles of leaders. Um, We've had some that, you know, the autocrat leader who sits there and barks orders. I sometimes in my workshops and keynote speeches talk about the authoritative leader being that compared to a drill sergeant in the Marine Corps. And I've asked people, what do they think of their drill sergeant on the third day of their basic training? And I've heard rather shocking answers. But I asked them, what do they think of that same person at graduation? And it's total respect and love for that situation. 
So their leadership style has to manifest. What is your natural leadership style? How do you adjust? How do you find things to do differently? Because let's face it, in the last 15 years, things have changed, not just with the coronavirus, but in general. So tell me a little bit about your leadership style. And I think the key word in that phrasing uh, that you put forth was natural. And I think I've learned over the years that you have to be yourself in your leadership style and you have to be authentic. If you don't believe, if you don't believe what you're saying, no one else is going to believe what you're saying and no one's going to follow. Exactly. And I think, you know, you know, I took some, some coursework after uh, college at, at Cornell University in the College of Industrial and Labor Relations. And I took this beautiful class on proactive leadership. You know, and coming from football, I was always nervous about whether or not I was, you know, being professional enough in my leadership approach. And, you know, the professor in that class, you know, he really validated how I felt where he said, you have to say things the way that you say them. So if I were to characterize my leadership style, it's, you know, it's natural. I have to be 100% authentic. You know, I'm, I'm a scholar and an athlete, and I can't always turn away from what I've learned in sports. So teaming is a part of that. So through teaming, I, I like to believe I'm an inspirational leader. And sometimes it's just telling someone, come on, you can do it that gets them where they need to be. As a teamer, I always kind of employ this quality circle style of management. And certainly in the things that I do, it's not always fair to look at my staff and expect them to do everything. Sometimes I have to be willing to go down to where the most junior person sits and kind of do some of that work on a regular basis. Now, there are times when I need to be above that and working on you know, organizational governance but I'm not afraid to do what my team does. So, you know, we come together, I try and let my team own what we do. Um, I try and let them step up as I try and help them develop into their own kind of leader, you know, and let them give important presentations and things. I don't always feel like I have to be the person uh, to do that. So it's really built on that. It's the teaming, it's the inspirational, you know, motivation, it's that quality circle, you know, approach where you try and develop your team and kind of let them own, you know, what they're working on. So when you've got somebody who's not, I don't know, the, the term maybe is carrying their own weight, not doing things, not, not hitting it. What are some ideas and things that you might be able to share that you have used to help bring that person along, get them more into the team spirit? What have you been able to do? Yeah. And, you know, you know, you have to know people and, you know, sometimes it's just a frank conversation you know, because I, I like everyone that I've ever worked with, you know, everyone that I've ever hired, everyone that I was ever asked to manage, I, I truly have liked them. You know, and sometimes they, you know, they're just not always great employees. So I always try and look for resolution before confrontation, you know, and that's just my nature. I like so that I'll phrase. Let's, let's, let's repeat that phrase, resolution before confrontation. That's a right. I always phrase. try and look to solve problems before there's a confrontation and try and solve them early. You know, for example, I had one employee that just, you know, in the type of work that we do, you know, it's, it's really for extroverts and you have to be on the phones and you have to meet people and talk to people. And it just was not her thing. I mean, it just, it was painful for her 
So we kind of came to the resolution that I wasn't going to always ask her to do that all the time. She needed to do some of it, but then I said, well, what can you do to add to the team's success? And she wanted to focus more on research. You know, she wanted to focus more on trying to help us get better organized. And I, I let her sit in that role and she thrived in that role. She helped make the organization better. And then at a certain point, she realized, you know, that enough was enough for her there. She's done all she could do. And then she moved on. So for me, I felt like that was a success. You know, I, Oh, absolutely. You know, I coached her up on it and I, I gave her an opportunity to stay. I, I gave her an opportunity to work on the things that she, she was good at. And for me, where that comes from is, you know, some of the great coaches that I've played for, you know, I just appreciate them so much. I, I was never really a big, powerful, you know, football player. You know, I was fast and I was adequate in strength, but my coaches never really put me in situations where I would fail. So I try not to do that to, to the people that I manage. And that is powerful because what you just illustrated there, if, uh, if anybody's ever read the book, Good to Great by Jim Collins, in that book, he talks about first who, then what, and getting the right people with the right vision, mindset, and all of that. But sometimes they're not in the right seats or in a football analogy, in the right position. They have to move. Now, I'm a big baseball fan. Cal Ripken came up uh, at shortstop, but as he aged, he moved over to third base because his athletic ability wasn't necessarily the same as it had been. And so the, the power there is understanding where we can get the strengths out of everybody. And by taking somebody who may not be as an, as you use the words, extrovert, getting that person at that point to do what they thrive in and grow, yes, they may matriculate out, but I think it's really powerful to recognize that, that, that aspect. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you change your leadership style when you need to? Is there anything that you do that you recognize you may need to change from your natural to something a little else while still keeping your core? Yeah, I mean, and I think I think there's always opportunities uh, to change and to grow. And I feel like I'm in that space, you know, right now as technology has advanced, um, having a social media presence and a web presence is is very important and you know i'm 52 years old you know so i'm just kind of you know i kind of just i'm on the back end of that wave you know i kind of miss that so i'm playing catch up there but i've got some smart people on my team and if i was the type of leader that felt like i needed to make every decision i probably still wouldn't be in my role because our membership changes you know every year you know, guys are coming, guys are going, and you still need to stay in touch with the people that you serve. So I really tried to empower my staff that was in tune to that, and certainly some of the younger people on my staff that had an ear for that sort of thing, and just a natural ability around social media to really just kind of take over the platform. And I'm, I'm, it was one of the best decisions that I've ever made. A, because I don't want to worry about it because I don't know a whole bunch about it. I'm still learning. And they get excited about it. And it's something that they can own and they can see the value that it's added uh, to our organization. So for me, it's always being willing to learn and uh, to let your staff kind of manage up and you know, not be afraid to hear from your staff, hey, hey, Andre, that's a bad idea, or hey, 
I really think we should do it a different way. And I'm always open to that. When my team tells me that's a bad idea, I don't, I don't sulk, you know, and there's, there's never any retaliation. You know, I just kind of laugh and it's kind of like a joke amongst us when they look at me and they just say, no, Andre, right. that's not a good idea. And that's, and that's okay. That's okay. That's really good because that shows a couple of factors of what I talk about in a lot of my workshops is A, it shows your vulnerability. It shows that you're open to that. And that builds a level of trust so that in the future, they're okay to come back and do that again because they know that you're not going to have a retaliation aspect to it. Correct. Yes. So indeed. has your leadership style changed from the time you uh, got out of the, uh, the league uh, up to the current time? Has that changed at all or has this always been your style? No, I mean, I think it's changed. I think in the very beginning, I had this mindset where I needed to be a little more that top-down leader you know, because I, I thought that's what leadership was. So I really tried to kind of, you know, force that a little bit. And um, you, you can end up making some mistakes, you know, with your team, you know, they, you know, they resent you a little bit. They don't know, they're not always willing to follow you. And those mistakes, you know, I learned, you know, at the hospital along the way, managing a big group. So that when I did get to the NFLPA, my style was already starting to change. It was back into sports, you know, something that I knew a lot about and the people that I was serving, we had something in common. So I think I was able to fall back a little bit more to, to my natural style. But you still had to learn some things. I was still young in the workforce. You know, I still had to understand governance and those things. And I think when, when you're talking about governance, there should always be a little bit more of a top-down approach because at the end of the day, that's on me if something blows up. Right. Certainly dealing with people, I'm able to use my, you know, my teaming style more. But for the governance, I definitely try and stay a little more focused. So I've kind of blended two styles where exactly. the different levels of importance kind of come into play. Yeah, Ken Blanchard used to talk about that more as a situational leadership whatever the situation is, you adapt to that particular style. And Ken Blanchard, of course, wrote a great book that I was, uh, happened to enjoy the audio version. Now, the book is old enough that I listened to it on audio tape, not even an audio CD, <laughs> much less an MP3 file or on Audible. But he co-wrote the book with uh, a gentleman we just lost recently, Don Shula, mm. about how everyone's a coach. And he would take analogies from football and put them into business and they would bounce the ideas back and forth. So is there something you learned in football specifically that you're able to use in leadership? I think some of the things that I've learned in football is, you know, you know, some leaders, you know, some leaders and, you know, I, you know, there are other leaders at the NFLPA and there are certainly people that I have to answer to, but I want some leaders feel like it, everything has to get done today. You know, but what I've learned in football is, you know, it's a process, you know, it's a marathon, you know, sometimes you make a great play, sometimes you make a string of horrible plays, but you just, you know, you keep trying, you keep trying to get better, you keep trying to, to reach your goal. So one thing I always tell my team is, hey, you know, there's always tomorrow, like it doesn't all have to get done today. So that kind of creates this more of a, you know, relaxed work environment where, you know, we, we can't have great days every day. You know, some days you come in, you're not motivated. So I never, 
again, I don't want to hold that against them or retaliate if they're having a tough day because there's always tomorrow. And I think, you know, I think the other thing is, is that um, in sports, you, you know, you have to count on the person next to you. And I've always tried to create that sort of environment for my team that, you know, you can believe in the person next to you and try and count on that, count on that person when the going gets tough. And whenever we're working on big projects, whenever we have board meetings coming up, I'm always like, hey, all hands on deck. That means everybody rolls up their sleeves, you know, gets into that workroom and does what we need to do to have a successful meeting, so. And then with your leadership style, there's a willingness to want to do that. And that, that's absolutely key versus saying, we have to do this. There's a whole different mindset. Right, right. In the last several months, we've been dealing with the COVID-19 and the stay-at-home policies. How have you adapted? How has your team adapted to uh, everything in that situation? I mean, because we're service-oriented, you know, I don't want to say it was, a, I don't want to say it was an easy transition, but you know, we have the proper phone systems that allow us to, to still work and, you know, kind of get our jobs done. You know, we've done a few things that kind of keep us connected. We have a weekly call in, you know, with just our core team where we actually, you know, can see each other's faces. You know, we make fun of each other a little bit. And, you know, if someone doesn't have their camera on, we say, we don't care what you look like, you know, cause I'm never really gonna be dressed up either. You know, we're wearing baseball hats, so it's relaxed, but I wanna be able to see their faces and I wanna be able to, you know, look them in the eye as best I can and communicate with them on, you know, what some of our goals are. You know, I feel like in this COVID-19, scenario we've kind of streamlined our business to really just focus on the core of what we do and i think the team has responded well to that um, we've created a spreadsheet that we all can see and kind of track our daily activities so we've done some things that kind of that we don't normally do in the office we've done some things in this COVID 19 situation that still kind of pulls us together and kind of forces us to kind of take a look and focus on each other. And that's really key because a lot of companies are struggling because now everybody's remote. They don't know how to bring them together. And so doing that in that process, have you developed new processes that even post COVID-19 you might be able to use? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think now working from home in this situation and working with my team, I realize you know, what are the most important things. So you know, I've created this checklist over the last couple of months, you know, as I stumble down into the basement, that's where they have me working. You know, I kind of stumble down into the basement and kind of start to go through this checklist. And I think that checklist will, will be with me for the rest of my career at the NFLPA. There's just eight, there's six or eight things every day that you need to log on and take a look at. And when I was working in the office, you know, because someone might stop you on your way to your desk, someone might want to ask you about a situation that happened, you know, a month ago, you don't always focus on that checklist, but that's going to be one thing that I always do. I'm always going to get in, I'm going to check those six or eight things to make sure that my day is moving in the right direction. And the spreadsheet that we created to kind of keep an eye on each other, that has been so valuable and uh, everyone logs into it. And for me, I don't really care, you know, how often you're on this spreadsheet or not. I just care at the end of the day if the job is getting done. 
but it is a nice way to see that, hey, we're all active and we're all doing our part. So I don't think the spreadsheet will ever leave um, yeah. as well because you actually have to physically go in and type a few things in. So. Right. Do you notice, though, that some people may be working really early in the morning and some people may be working really late at night on that? Have you noticed that? Yeah, and I have. And, and uh, typically, I'll, I'll, I'm, not an, I'm not an early riser, even in our regular work situation. I don't get to the office before nine o'clock. You know, that's kind of my time to get in. I have one that comes in at seven. You know, I have another because of the nature of his work. Sometimes he likes to work at night and he may come in at 10. Mm -hmm. And I've never really, I've never really cared much about that as long as the job's getting done. Exactly. There's the key. And generally, generally speaking, I think we're all up generally in the same hour as we work from home. But, you know, I know I, I try and knock off a little earlier than some of them. Some of them stay on a little later. I might get a text message or an email, you know, at eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, hey, you know, that's fine. But sometimes I have to tell them, all right, you know, that's that's enough. <laughs> that's enough for today. You know, we we always have tomorrow. So. Oh yeah, that that's absolutely key. I was uh, actually watching a video from a um, colleague of mine the other day, and he was talking about this too shall pass, and tomorrow will come. You know that type of situation. Let's let's do it. Let's have our goals for the day, your checklist, if you will, and get through that. As we get ready to close, I want to ask you a question. One of the thoughts that came up to mind as we were talking a little before we got on the uh, recording portion here was Coach Joe Gibbs, and you mentioned him a little earlier as well. He was, or is, the only coach to have won three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks. And you were fortunate enough, I believe, to play on one of those teams. Correct. So what was it about him? How was he able to do that? Other coaches have won multiple Super Bowls, but they've had, they've had a core group. How did this all work for him? Yeah, you know, and I, I still scratch my head sometimes at what he was able to accomplish with so many different types of people. But I think, you know, A, I think he was authentic. You know, he was truly an authentic man. He believed in what he believed in, and he was never going to waver from that. Um, he had a tremendous respect for us as people, whereas some coaches, you know, don't always care so much about their players, you know, but he had a tremendous respect for us and was genuinely interested in who we were and the lives that we were living. And, you know, if we were willing to listen, he certainly was willing to, you know, to share some of his own vulnerabilities. But I think, you know, his greatest accomplishment was being able to get wonderfully talented players, superstar players that would have shined brightly on any team to kind of sacrifice their own personal success uh, for the team's success. And uh, one thing about those Redskins teams, everyone had a job to do and everyone knew their job and everyone did their job really well. Brian Mitchell wasn't going to do my job. I wasn't going to do Sidney Johnson's job. Monty Coleman wasn't going to do Kirk Gavea's job. We all had a job to do, and we knew exactly what we were supposed to do for that team. So when our number was called, we went in. There was no confusion. There was no misconception about what your role and what your responsibilities were. And I think making that clear, and that certainly translates to business, but making yes. that clear for us as players 
just really allowed us to stay sharp, stay focused. And, you know, man, we were, we were a killing machine out there, you know, the Redskins during those years. Oh, absolutely. That was the strength in that. And what's beautiful to understand is how you get that to translate into business today. Because today we've got so many people in the little cat fights in the office saying, she's not doing her job. He's not doing this. They're not doing this. And if we all understand our own jobs, we're all part of that cogwheel, like an old fashioned watch, if you will. Yeah. And once we start to understand that, that comes the strength. And I think that may be some of the places from Coach Gibbs, how you got your style and how you're leading that way, because you seem very, very genuine in the way you do it. And that is so powerful. You've got to be authentic. And the, and the other thing, if I can just add on to that, one last thing was that even though, you know, the guy playing on special teams may not seemed to be as glamorous as the quarterback to the public's eye in our locker room. What he did was just as valuable as what the quarterback did. And coach Gibbs always honored everyone on the team, you know, really in the same way. So, you know, your job, you know, what you did for the team was so important to him. And it was no, there were, there was no difference between the guy that was covering kicks versus the, the quarterback, uh, you know, calling the plays in the huddle. Everyone, everyone was important to Coach Gibbs. And that's powerful. And motivating people and being able to do that and carrying that forward into businesses and recognizing everybody on a team in the business environment, whether it's at the NFL Players Association or on an assembly line in a manufacturing plant. It's always about getting everybody engaged and keeping them uh, focused and motivated. Yeah. And I, and I really, again, I really like all the people that I've ever worked with. And I know, you know, when I get a young star and you can just tell, you know, they just have this twinkle in their eye and they're just thinking about things in such a different way. You realize right away, you're like, oh, I'm not going to be able to keep this one forever. But you, you teach them what you can, you know, you try and develop them, but you also know that one day they're going to leave and you should be excited for them when they do move on uh, to a bigger opportunity. So, you know, I've had some of those and, you know, it feels good to watch them have success. Absolutely. Helping them grow and move beyond you is powerful because if we try to hold them back. That's just going to hurt the team as a whole in itself. Yeah. Andre Collins, I appreciate the time here today on the Teamwork Advantage. We're going to be back again next week with New and powerful information for you here about teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Once again, Andre, thanks for joining us here on this episode. And we wish you to have a great day because we always say having a good day is only being average. Take care. Thank you. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.